This morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. And we're going to embark on a short series. It's going to run about six weeks. And then when it's over, we'll return to the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is still there, in case you're wondering. And I haven't forgot about it. We will get back to it and finish it off, Lord willing. Uh, but for the next few weeks, we want to talk about the fact that we are stewards of a sacred trust. And I'll explain uh, more about what that means in a minute and a little later in the message where we're going in the next few weeks for those of you who like uh, directions ahead of time. Uh, Luke 19.11-27 As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servants. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given him. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we embark on this new series, we ask that your blessing will be upon it. We want to ask that you will send your spirits so that we will see that we are called to be your stewards. We are called to be faithful. We are called to be diligent. Father, help us to see just how serious a call this is. And Father, this passage does show us that this is a serious responsibility that You have given to us. Father, by Your grace, may, you be, may we be faithful. Father, speak to us this morning. May our lives be changed because of Your Word. In Christ's name we ask this confidently. Amen. You may be seated. 
Once upon a time in a faraway land, there was a small village in which lived four men named Everybody, Somebody, Anybody, and Nobody. Now, in this village, there was a significant task that had to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody, however, neglected to do it because he was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got upset about this since it was everybody's job. However, everybody thought that anybody could have done it. Yet nobody was aware that everybody wouldn't do it. In the end, everybody blamed somebody while nobody did the job that anybody could have done in the first place. Last month at our congregational meeting, I mentioned this little story, and I mention it again this morning for two reasons. First of all, I want to remind you of what I said at our congregational meeting. Many of you were there. Many of you were not. I mentioned that ministry is a team effort. We all have a responsibility when it comes to ministry. Let's not think that there are people out there who are going to take care of ministry. And I mentioned that on the worship team, they had a little trouble with the piano over here. The sound wasn't working, and Michelle had a practice. And Ken asked the question, very good question. He asked, did they take care of it? (laughs) And Michelle said, uh, Ken, there is no they. (laughs) We are the they. (laughs) Now, as it turns out, uh, Bob Johnson did come in during the week and take care of it. But here's the lesson in that little story. Uh, The they is us. We are Fox Lake Community Church. And if ministry needs to get done, Here's here's the little secret in case you didn't know this. Uh, Elves do not come in during the week and take care of the work of ministry. Ministry is everybody's responsibility. And it really is a beautiful thing when everybody comes together, isn't it? Um, I stopped in yesterday afternoon and I went downstairs and the ladies were setting up for Tiffany's baby shower. And it was great just to see all these ladies, you know, setting up and decorating and work together. It really is just a, a beautiful thing to see everybody working together. When the men come together for a project like we did this last summer on the deck, I, I think what I enjoy more than any, anything else is just watching everybody come together, helping out, encouraging one another, working together. And I just think when ministry functions like this, there really is no end to what we can accomplish. Now, the other reason why I mention that story is because it really is a fitting introduction to Jesus' parable. Now, we'll get to the context in a minute, uh, but Jesus makes it very clear that all his servants, everybody, without exception, has been entrusted with his resources. Therefore, every single servant is called to be faithful. And every single servant will be called to give an account for how faithful they have been to what has been entrusted to their care. In short, all of us are stewards of a sacred trust. You kids know that word, stewards? You know what that word? Basically, it just means manager. 
We are all managers of a sacred trust. We are managers of God's possessions, of God's resources. And we are called to be faithful. That's the message of the parable. But before we get to that, I want to ask this question. Why did Jesus tell this parable? What's the context? Look at verse 11. As they heard these things, and this comes right after the episode with Jesus and Zacchaeus that we talked about during Christmas. But as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. That's very important. Jerusalem was Jesus' final destination. If you turn back to Luke 18.31, we read, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what he said. So Jesus made it very clear. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified, but it's okay. I'm going to rise on the third day. They didn't understand what he was saying. But they did understand that Jerusalem was the final destination. That much they understood. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he told them this parable. They thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. In other words, they thought Jesus was going to march into Jerusalem with his armies with him, extend his power, conquer the Romans, and set the captives free, and set up his throne right there in Jerusalem. That's what they were anticipating. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were waiting for. But the kingdom of God was not going to appear immediately. What they did not foresee is that, yes, Jesus was born King of the Jews. Yes, He was going into Jerusalem to be their King, but they didn't expect Him to be a King who would die, then rise again from the third day, and then 40 days after that, ascend into heaven to be coronated in heaven. That they didn't understand. That they completely They understood a king who was going to come and set them free. They didn't understand a king who was going to come and die for them and to defeat their greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death. That they didn't understand. So he tells them this parable to help them out. Verse 12, He said, Therefore, a nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, let me read from uh, Leon Moritz's commentary to help you understand a little bit of the background that the Jews would have understood very well of how a prince, a nobleman, would go to a certain country so that he could be uh, coronated as king and then come and then reign over his people. And just about every single commentary pointed this out. This is what uh, Morris writes. Um, What we have taking place is a vassal or a prince 
making the pilgrimage to Rome to be made king. Herod the Great has received, had received his kingdom that way. In his will, he divided his realm between three of his sons, all of whom in due course went to Rome to press their claims. Archelaus had been left Judea. So in other words, Judea, where the Jews were, was left to Archelaus to rule over. So Archelaus had been left Judea with the title king. But, and this is very important, this is going to come into play a little later in Jesus' parable, but the people detested him and sent representatives or a delegation to ask that he not be given the kingdom. He had given them good reason for hating him. At the first Passover, after his ascension, for example, he had massacred about 3,000 of his subjects. He was a thoroughly bad ruler. But the emperor confirmed him in the place of authority, though he was denied the title king until he should prove worthy of it later, which he never did. So, real simple. Uh, Archelaus was a prince when the time came. He went to Rome so that he could be uh, coronated, crowned king, and then he would come back to Judea after going away to a faraway land, and he would reign over his kingdom, but they hated him. They sent a delegation saying, no, we don't want him reigning over us, but he did anyways. So that's a little bit of the background uh, that's very important for you to understand how this works. So verse 12, tell you what, let's just take it a step at a time. A noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. The noble man represents, anybody know? Christ. Okay, hope you understand that. The faraway country represents heaven. The faraway country represents heaven, which he went to to receive a kingdom that took place at his ascension. Acts 2, 34-35 makes it very clear that he ascended and he sat down at the right hand of his Father. In Psalm 110.1 was fulfilled. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies their footstool. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is very important for this because it makes it very clear about the kingdom that was given to him. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, we read about the ascension. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. He's coming up to the Ancient of Days, which is the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So that's talking about the ascension of Christ. He ascended to heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father where He was given the kingdom and He rules over the world. Then it says, and then return. Now, what does this refer to? Now, let me just warn you ahead of time. This is going to get uh, a little intense. 
But this will be the hard part and then it gets easy, okay? Okay? And then return. When does the king return? Now, if you want to write these down, it might be helpful. Uh, I just got a few points to help us with this. Let's remember, first of all, that not every return refers to the second coming. Often when we see in Jesus returns, we think this must be the second coming. There are other passages that talk about a coming of Christ that cannot be the second coming. And I'm just going to give you these passages and you can write them down and read them later. But in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out His disciples and Verse 16, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware, because they will deliver you over to courts to flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say. The Father will tell you what to say. And then in verse 23, he says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the tribes of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, this coming cannot be the second coming because the disciples are still going through the tribes of Israel. What does that refer to? We won't go there yet, but it can't refer to the second coming. Turn ahead to Matthew 16.27, if you like. Or you can just write it down. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Okay, now look at me if, if you would. Now, if you had just read that verse, what coming would you think that was talking about? What do you think that's the second coming? He, he's going to come back. He's coming with His angels. And He's going to repay everybody for what they have done. This, this is the final judgment of Christ. And I would think that too. Except we read on. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Christ is coming back with the angels. He's going to repay everybody according to what He's done. And He says to His disciples, and they're standing here, and there's some of you standing right here Remember, talking to his disciples who are not going to taste death. In other words, some of you are not going to die. Some of you are still going to be alive when this happens. When what happens? When Christ comes back with the angels to repay them and to bring the kingdom. Okay? Now, there's another reason why I think this coming uh, does not refer to the second coming, and that's the context of many of Jesus' parables. Back to Luke 19, our parable. But his citizens hated him. And we'll come back to that in a minute. The citizens hated him. And then verse 27 says, As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them and slaughter them before me. Often when we read the parables, this, this is what we do. And I, and I know some of this is complex, but 
even if you can just understand a few things from this, I, I think it's important. Often we read the parables and what we do is we lift the parable out of its context, as it were, and we, we kind of open it up and we make application. Often we don't realize that Jesus is telling this parable to a specific first century audience first. And I believe that's what he's doing here. I think he's talking directly to the Jews of the first century first who did not want him to reign over them. And this, this is very important for understanding the Bible. And even if this goes over your head and you say, okay, I didn't get all that. I'll have to read that later. Understand this. Read the parables in context. And it is fascinating how many parables directly apply to the Jews of that day. And this will add a lot of uh, vitality to your Bible reading. Let me just give you one example. Luke 20, since we're right there. Another parable that, that's very similar. In verse 9, he begins to tell the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard and he let it out to the tenants and he went to another country for a long while. Very, very similar parable. Okay, now we're not going to go through all that because we've got to get back to our previous parable. But just drop down to... Uh, verse 15, if you will. And they threw him out. And that refers to the son of the owner of the vineyard. Okay. They threw him out. Verse 16. He will come and destroy those tents and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 19. Important to read on. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. That's crucial. This is not just a general parable. He told this parable against them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're the ones who were entrusted with God's vineyard, Israel. They were to be faithful and God sends servants, prophets. And then finally, He sends His Son. And what do they do? They kill the Son. And consequently, what's going to happen? They are going to be judged for killing the Son. And I submit to you that that is exactly what happened in A.D. 70. And in Matthew's version of this parable, Matthew adds, talking about this one in Luke 20, and the kingdom of God was taken away from them and given to a people who will bear its fruits. So when the Son returned in judgment in 70 A.D., He judged them for rejecting the Son, took the kingdom away from them, and gave it to others who would produce its fruit. Spiritual Israel. So this is talking about the first century Jews. It's a warning to them and the judgment that would come upon them. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. It's interesting. Luke 19, verse 41. The first thing that happens when Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, 1941, is He weeps over the city. Remember that? He weeps 
over the city. Why does Jesus weep over the city? Verse 42, saying, and he's talking about Jerusalem, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. God was visiting Israel in the person of Jesus Christ. They didn't recognize Him for who He was. Therefore, they are going to be judged. Jesus prophesies about the judgment that's going to take place. And He says, Jerusalem, you're going to be surrounded by enemies. It's going to be so devastating that not one stone will be upon another. And He says, you and your children are going to suffer this. And I really think we should picture Jesus pointing His finger. You and your children are going to experience this because you in this generation didn't recognize the time of His coming. This specifically refers to the first generation. Notice very clearly, Jesus is prophesying what will take place. It's going to be surrounded. It's going to be so devastating that not one stone will be left upon another. Turn to Luke 21. commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, temple that took 46 years to build where the Jews came and they, and they worshipped, it was absolutely glorious. They come to the temple and they talk about how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's what Jesus said earlier. Not one stone will be left upon another. And he continues on and talks about what's going to happen. Look at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. Not one stone will be left upon another. Remember, he said it's going to be surrounded. It's going to be hemmed in from every side. Here he says it again. When you see the city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. And then he continues to talk about other things that will happen. Then verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and you know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things, that backs up to everything he was talking about beginning in verse 5, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. That's a verse I didn't see before. I saw a little while ago. I thought, wow, that makes it so clear. The kingdom of God is near. What is Jesus saying? When Jerusalem is destroyed, when the temple is decimated, when Christ comes back in judgment, not the second coming, that'll take place later, but when He comes back in judgment upon those who rejected Him, at that time, the kingdom comes with power and He establishes. Then you know it's near. 
in 70 A.D. And then verse 32, he said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not, will not pass away until all this takes place. The generation that he was talking to said, this is going to come upon this generation. And sure enough, to the letter, Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled when the Romans came into Jerusalem, surrounded it, destroyed the temple, along with the Jews who rejected Christ. Okay, now, as I said, I know that's a lot to take in, uh, but I really did want to give you the interpretation of this parable before moving on to the application. Um, Now, the parable, four points. And as I said, the hard part comes first. So, from here on out, it's going to be a little easier so you can take a big uh, sigh of relief if if you need to. Okay, the parable really can be divided into four points. First of all, Christians are stewards of God's possessions. Look at verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Regardless of the interpretation, however you take that, The application for us is clear. Engage in business until Christ comes again at His second coming or until we die. We are to be faithful. But notice, every single servant is given a mina. Now, what's a mina? I have a footnote in my Bible that says it's about three months' wages for a laborer. So, it's as though the servants of the prince are all lined up and he says, now I'm going to give you a mina, you a mina, you a mina, you a mina, and you a mina. Okay, every single one of them is given a mina and the prince tells them or the nobleman tells them before he goes away, I want you to engage in business. I want you to be faithful. Now, the mina here represents money, but this is what we need to see. This is just a parable. The application is broader. We are stewards of much more than money. And here's what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. This is where we're going. We are stewards of God's Word. We are stewards of God's money. We are stewards of God's children. We are stewards of God's gifts. We are stewards of God's people. And here's what you'll notice about each one of those topics. We are stewards, not owners. Technically speaking, we don't own anything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns everything. We are just stewards. We are just His managers and He entrusted to our care. That's why also in the title, we are stewards of God's Word, God's money, God's children, God's gifts, God's people. It's all God's. We're stewards, but it all belongs to God. But we are to be stewards of it. We don't even belong to ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, we're told that we were bought with a price. Therefore, we are to honor God with our bodies. God created us and God bought us with the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't belong to ourselves. And if we want to get real technical here, most translations say servants, but the Greek word is doulos. We've talked about this before. It's the word for slave. We don't own ourselves. The Master owns us. We are slaves. He has redeemed us. He has purchased us with His blood. He owns us. 
We belong to Him. But He entrusts us to be a part of kingdom business. And He doles out His possessions to us. And that should make all the difference in the world. That should give us a different mindset. I love the story of John Wesley. On one occasion, his house burned to the ground. Tremendous tragedy. Some of you know that a couple of months ago, one of our neighbors, their house burned to the ground. They, they were away on vacation. And imagine coming back on vacation and there's your house. It burned to the ground. Wesley was told that his house burned. And he said, if the Lord wants to burn his house down, that's his doing. What a great attitude. That's his house. You're going to go home to the Lord's house, the Lord's apartment, wherever you're staying. It's the Lord's. You manage it. Ultimately, it does not belong to you. Everything belongs to God. Now, in this parable, it's interesting that everybody is given a minus. It's, it's nice and even. It's not always that even, though. If you turn back to Matthew 25, there's another parable that's very similar. It's one of those parables that's similar but different and Liberals want to say, well, you have all these mistakes and differences in the Bible. It's just Jesus told two different parables on different occasions, but the stories were, were similar. There's nothing wrong with that. Matthew 25, 14. But I, want you, I want you to know some of the differences. 25, 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey. Again, sounds very similar. And called his servants, slaves, and entrusted to them his property. Now again, this, this is very simple, but we have to get this. In mind. It's his property. He entrusted it to us. Now here's where the difference comes into. To one he gave five talents, to another two and another one. Now here he doesn't give them a mina. Here he gives them a talent. Everybody knows what a talent is, right? That's a gift or ability, like playing the piano or baseball. Or <laughs> That's not what a talent is here. Again, I, I have a footnote in my Bible. Maybe you have one in yours. My Bible says, A talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. So the first one was given five talents. Can you do the math with me? Five times 20 equals... See, I told you it was going to get easier. <laughs> but, but think about that. A hundred years' wages. That's a significant amount of money. Uh, the next servant was given two talents. About 40 years' wages. And the last one was given one to 20 years' wages. Now, now here's the point. It isn't always even. Some of us are given more talents than another. And again, this doesn't just mean money, but it does mean gifts and, and money and, and other resources. God, God is different. Some get five, some get two, some get one. It's different. But we should notice it's God's. And I think we should also realize that's pretty significant. I mean, would, would any of you just say, here's what I've made over the last 20 years. Can you take care of it for me and invest it? You'd do a lot of investigation before you turned over 20 years' income to another person, wouldn't you? This is what God does. This is what Jesus Christ does to us. We need to see that He really is entrusting a lot to our care. I, I, I imagine when, when Jesus was getting ready to go to heaven and He came and He said, now I want you to take care of this. 
until I come back. I imagine the angels in heaven going, wow, you think he really should be doing that? <laughs> you think he can really trust those guys? <laughs> this is a tremendous responsibility that we have. Very simple, but very profound. We are stewards of God's possession. It really is a sacred trust that has been given to us. So that's the first point. Second point is that the citizens hate the noblemen. Look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And, and here's where it's good to understand the background of Archelaus. He's going to Rome so he could be installed as officially as king and then come back and reign over Judea. Here's Jesus Christ, the true nobleman, getting ready to go to heaven so that he can be crowned as king and then come back and be king over his kingdom. And what did the Jews of the first century say? What did they say to Pilate when he said, Behold your king. We have no king but Caesar. We don't want him ruling over us. We'll take Caesar. That's what the Jews of the first century said. So again, I think we should put it right in the first century context. The citizens, the first century Jews, didn't want him. Now notice a couple other things. They're his citizens. His citizens. Whether they want him to be king or not, they're his citizens. Whether people are in church this morning or not, ultimately, they are all citizens of King Jesus. I don't care if they're a part of a church or not. I don't care if they're Americans or not. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. They are His citizens. And whether they want Him to be king over Him or not, He is king over them. And they better beware because if they don't bow before this king, they will pay the price. But I also want you to notice what it says. His citizens hated Him. They hated Him. You know, I think it was a couple of weeks ago we were we were having a little family devotional time and I and I mentioned that uh, unbelievers hate God and and one of my kids says well they don't really hate him do they and I said oh they do they hate him the citizens hated him the first century Jews who didn't want him reign they hated Jesus friends they called for his crucifixion. They hated him. And just this morning in my devotions, I was reading in John 15 where Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember that they hated me first. John 3 says that they hate the light because their deeds are evil so they want to stay in the darkness. Jesus is the light. They hate him. And this is what I said to my family, and I've said it to you before. If you think people don't hate God, just have a conversation with one of your neighbors or coworkers, and, and you don't have to talk about you know, judgment and hellfire. Just say, hey, can, can I tell you some good news about Jesus Christ? I just want to be real positive, upbeat. Can I tell you some good news? We serve a God who loves His people. Again, just give the positive. We serve a God who loves His people. Can I tell you about this God who loves His people? See what they don't say. <laughs> They don't want to hear about the God who loves His people. They hate Him and just have a little bit of discussion and that hatred rises to the surface. They hate Him. 
And just like the Jews towards Archelaus, they sent a delegation and they said, we don't want this man to be king over us. We'll come back to them a little later, or Jesus will. Third point is that we are stewards with the sacred trust and we are called to give an account. We are called to give an account. And again, I don't care if you have a different interpretation about the time of Jesus' return. I know most take this as the second coming. That's okay. As far as application goes, we're all on the same page. I think we all understand that we will be called to give an account. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Just picture it. He comes back and all the servants are lined up before the king. And he says, I entrusted to you my property, my money, some of you tremendous amount. I want to know what you did with it. I want to know if you've been faithful or not. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Pretty good. Twenty years' wages has now become a hundred years' wages. Well done, good servant. Don't we all want to hear that? Well done, good servant. Martin Luther said we should live every day in light of that day. Talking about the judgment. We should live every single day in light of that day to come. We should live every single day so that we can hear Jesus Christ say one thing to us. Well done, good servant. Matthew's account has well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we should be living for every single day, to hear that commendation by our Lord. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. He was faithful in little. I don't think it's little. 20 years wages, but he was faithful in little. He's given 20 cities that he can rule and reign over. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. That's pretty good. Five cities entrusted to his care. He's rewarded not with rest, but more responsibility. More opportunities for ministry, if you will. Then another came saying, Lord... Here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. I put it in a handkerchief. I put it up on a high shelf in my closet and I, and I, just, I left it there. Put it away, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man, and take what you did not deposit and reap what you have not sown. I was afraid of you, so I just I, I hid it away. He said to him, I will condemn you. And we'll come back to those words, but notice that I will condemn you, not commend you, condemn you with your own words, you wicked servants. Wow. That's a quite a thing to hear. 
on the day of judgment. Not well done, good and faithful servant, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? You have at least put my money in the bank. When I, when I returned, I would have had interest. You didn't even do that. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. God is not an egalitarian God. It's not equal across the board. Those who are faithful, they're given even more. And those who are not faithful, even what they have, God's going to take it away from them. Now, why was this servant wicked? Well, first of all, notice that he says, I was afraid. Right? That's what he says. You know, I, was, I was afraid of you. Maybe he, he, he's afraid of failure. I think a lot of people don't do ministry just just out of fear. I told this story before, but let me say it again. John Piper mentioned that when he was in college, he had a fear of public speaking that he said very few people can relate to. And he said, my plan really was to take all my classes and then quit my senior year before I took my speech classes. Because I was scared to death. And I can relate to that. One day, the chaplain asked him if he would be willing to do the prayer in chapel. And he said, to his amazement, he found himself saying, how long does it have to be? The chaplain said, I, I don't know, 60 seconds? He said, he was even more surprised when he said, okay. <laughs> he said, I memorized that thing cold. He got through it. And he said he made a vow to God that he would never turn down a ministry opportunity because of fear. Beloved, don't let fear get in the way. Don't let fear get in the way. We, we serve a God who will strengthen us. Be terrible to stand before Him and say, you know what? I was, I was afraid I'd mess things up. We have a merciful Father in Heaven. Just think of how we are with our children. You know, our, our, our children try something new. You know, And if we're good parents... We don't say, ah, oh, you messed it up. I thought you'd get it right the first time. <laughs> you know, we're like, ah, oh, good, good try, honey. Do, you know, try it again. You know, whether it's playing the piano, again, you know, baseball, whatever it might be, math, you know, whatever. Try, try it again. You know, little kids learning to walk. Oh, that's good. Try it again. You fell down. That's okay. Try it. That's how our Heavenly Father is. This servant didn't know Jesus if he was really afraid of Him. But... I don't know for sure. Perhaps that was just an excuse because he was really lazy. There's a proverb that says, uh, the sluggard or the lazy man says, there's a lion in the streets. I'll be destroyed. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the streets. I'll be destroyed. You might have thought it would said, there's a fearful man or a cowardly man so there's a lion in the street. But it doesn't. It says, a lazy man. See, it was just an excuse. Well, if I go out there, there's lions out there, you know, and maybe tigers and bears too, and, and they'll devour me. It's an excuse. And it's interesting, in Matthew 25, again, in the parable, it's very similar. 
Jesus says, you wicked and lazy servant. Again, can I just be honest? Many people are not serving because they're just lazy. They're just lazy. On Tuesday night, I wonder, wow, how come there's not more people here? I wonder how many people aren't here because they're just too lazy. Sit home watching TV instead of coming to church for an hour. Now, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm, I'm not saying that you can't relax. I'm not saying you can't watch TV. I'm not saying any of that. But I really do fear that laziness, for whatever reason, is a big problem. And maybe it's because we're just, we're just selfish and we want to do our own thing. And we all have to be, be honest with ourselves. Maybe I'm just lazy. I don't want to do it. It takes work. I don't want to do it. Again, everyone stands and falls before his or her own master. But it is good from time to time for all of us to take a look at ourselves. I believe it was Socrates who said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And of course, we read in Scripture, examine yourself. It's good to look at ourselves once in a while and say, what? Why aren't I serving? Why don't I come out to a group? Why don't I get up early for church? I wonder how many people aren't here this morning because they're lazy. I wonder how many people are disobeying the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy because they're lazy for no other reason. And they couldn't get their butts out of bed if I can be blunt. We need to be honest. We need to look at ourselves. We need to think of why we're not doing what God's calling us to do. And then there's a final point, verse 26, excuse me, verse 27, and that is the citizens will be slaughtered. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, and again, I put it in the first century, and you can disagree with me, and, and, and that's okay, but I really do think it has a specific first century application. But as for these enemies of mine, these Jews who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And I believe that slaughter happened in 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. They were judged for not recognizing the day of their visitation, as Jesus says later. But regardless of how you take that, they are judged sooner or later. They were held to account. And notice how graphic it is too. Bring them here before me and slaughter them before me. I mean, the, the picture is of a sword and they're just they're slaughtered right there in front of Jesus saying they got what they deserve. This, this parable does not end on, on a positive note. It, this parable doesn't end with a happy, happily ever after. Why does it end this way? Because I think Jesus wants His first listeners and I think He wants us to say, this is serious. I, I think He wants us to walk away saying, wow, this is serious. King Jesus is not fooling around. 
this is serious business. Now, if we put together, notice, notice there's, there's two groups in this parable. There's, there's servants or slaves and there's citizens. Okay, the citizens don't want them reigning over them. Citizens, they're slaughtered. They are judged. The servants, we see there's all kinds of different servants and there's different degrees of faithfulness. But what about the servant who wasn't faithful? Maybe this represents a person who they think they're a part of the kingdom. They think that Jesus is their master. Maybe this is the kind of person that calls Jesus Lord, Lord. But they're not really true servants. Which is why they weren't faithful. Which is why they didn't bear any fruits. And in Luke, we're just told that what this servant had was taken away from him so that he didn't have anything. But here's what Matthew adds. Then, and notice how similar this is, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own business, what was my own interest. Sounds familiar, right? So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. Again, very similar, right? But this is what Matthew adds. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Actually, that's also a part of Luke. This is what's added. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does anybody want to tell me the four-letter word that Jesus is referring to here? This is a reference to hell. Not only are the citizens judged and slaughtered, but with this parable, Jesus is saying, if you're not faithful, if you don't invest what I gave you, you're a wicked servant. You're not really one of my servants. What you have will be taken away and you will join these citizens over here. You will be cast out. Ultimate judgment. Which tells us again, this is serious. It's, it's not optional to be a faithful servant. We really are stewards of a sacred trust. And it really does behoove us at the beginning of this year to say, what, what am I doing with these different gifts? And of course, the, the list could be endless. We, we could go on for years, literally. But let's, what are we doing with God's Word? Talk about it. What are we doing with it? And what are we doing with, with God's money? What, what are we doing with, with His children? We, we like to refer to them as, as our children. We like to say those are my children. But ultimately, those are God's children. That's why they've been baptized. As a reminder, they, they belong to God. And God says, now I want you to take care of my children that I've that given to you. And we all have gifts that we need to use. And we really are our brother's keeper. We're, we're responsible for one another. And we really should say, you know, what, what is God calling me to do? You know, in the bulletin, we, we have that list of different opportunities here. We're, we really are trying to help you to use your gifts and abilities so that when you stand before God, you can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We, we want to give you all the guidance and direction that we can.
so that you can experience the joy and satisfaction that comes from using the gifts that God has given to you. So that you can put your pillow you know, on your bed and lay your head down at night and say, you know what, I really did serve God today and, and this week like He was calling me to. And then, and then when you get old, you can say, I really am looking forward to standing before Him. I really have tried to be faithful. Of course, I'm not perfect and I've fallen Best of men are men at best, right? Even Peter, we talked about early, blew it. But then he came back, but I really did want to serve him. This, this is what we're called to do. We're called to serve him, what, what he's given to us. And let each one of us, let's really ask, what, what is God calling me to do? Because I want to be faithful. I hope that is your heart. And again, I know some of this probably was hard to follow, but the basic gist of this passage is very clear, is it not? We are all stewards of different talents, abilities, resources, and we are all called to be faithful and we will all give an account. I think all Christians across the board, I think we can all agree upon that. May God find us faithful. Let's close in prayer.